93.7 Express FM. Hello and welcome to another coronavirus special podcast. On the show this week, we spoke to leader of Portsmouth City Council, Gerald Vernon Jackson. We also chatted to the head of education and sociology at Portsmouth Uni. That was Dr. Catherine Carol Meehan. And also chief executive of Hampshire Isle of Wight and Air Ambulance was on the show. Alex Lochrane to talk about the work that Hampshire and Isle of Wight Air Ambulance are doing, partnering with the RAF a little bit later on. Also, local singer-songwriter Lauren Hibbard is on the show to talk to us about the challenges for those in the creative industries at the moment. And we got a little chat with a student at the University of Winchester as well, whose degree had been affected by the COVID-19 pandemic. As always, if you have a question for us that you want answering on the show, all you need to do is email me, robbie at expressfm.com, and I will do my best to answer any of your questions on Wednesday evenings from 6 o'clock. But we'll kick off with our first guest of the evening, leader of Portsmouth City Council, Gerald Vernon Jackson. Gerald, are you well? Very well, thank you. And kind of getting used to this. Yes, yeah, we, it's good to, have, good to have you on every week. Um, listen, I want to, first of all, I want to touch on uh, what we, what a, a news article I read not long before we came on air this evening about Portsmouth Council calling for more PPE equipment and some stricter government guidelines uh, to the government. Can you, can you explain more on that? So uh, we've got a strategic store of, of PPE um, so that we look after anybody who is not in the hospital where their normal supplies are running out. So the care homes, the GPs, um, people going to do home care visits to um, residents across the city, uh, people working um, for the city council, any of those people and the police who, who need PPE, where their normal stores are running out, we, we supply them. Um, and that's, that's worked re- pretty well. Uh, it was a real trouble getting hold of the stuff from the government to begin with. Um, they kept promising it and it, it didn't turn up, but we, we've now had two deliveries, so we're reasonably okay. Um, but it, there are problems getting hold of more of it, and uh, uh, lots of places, lots of care homes are running pretty short. So um, there needs to be more action by the government, I think, to be able to get this stuff out to people who are working really, really hard. And I think we're beginning to understand the pressures in care homes mm. because it, it, it's on our televisions every night now. The, the how much people are working there uh, and they're the people who are having problems getting hold of PPE uh, and, and yet these are the carers who are paid minimum wage So this is so, so uh, you, you said that you had two deliveries, is that since this letter was written or, or is that, uh, is no, that no, before? No, so no, we've had that in the last week or so right. but we just want to make sure that there is, there is more, um, there's more stuff that is available um, um, and I'd suggest you get um, Matthew Winnington who's the cabinet member for um, health and well-being in the city on to come and talk to you about it because um, he he deals with this um, the detail of it day in day out mm. is it some is it something that you're you, you're expecting sort of in terms of how the how you how the communication's been with the government recently are you expecting it'll be something that will be met i don't know after we'd had the second delivery we were told that was it mm. um, but i think there's pressure on government to try to up its game and make sure that there is more available. Because every time a care home runs out and we have to give them stuff, the stock goes down. Uh, and we didn't have huge amounts of it to begin with. And, and if somebody, a, a carer, is uh, having to change their apron, their mask, their gloves, every time they go from one client to another, a, a single carer can get through 20 sets in just one shift. So 
you have to have quite a lot of this stuff to make sure a care home works properly. Well, where, where I suppose when, when you sort of send these letters, I, I know that sort of when you send these letters, where where do you expect it to to, to come from? Because I know that we had we've had you know in the last few days we've learned about that um, the RAF plane going to Turkey to pick yep. up um, supplies over there. Where where are we expecting this? Is it because surely there will be a time lag with it being made? Oh, oh absolutely, and, and but but there are different things happening. So yeah. sometimes there are a, a local UK firms who are doing stuff. Um, there are um, companies so uh, making masks, uh, making um, the, the uh, hand gels to, to disinfect things. So all of that can be done locally. There are people making gowns, um, but but actually to be able to get volume, we're having to get it from from abroad. So I know, for instance, there's um, Albert Choi, who's one of the Chinese community, has got access to supplies from China and has been trying to talk with ministers and to get them purchased and we bought some from the council but but the government haven't seemed interested in purchasing so so you so you're looking for basically I'm just a big the, gov- the government are meant to lead on this stuff this is what yeah. we pay them for and so what are these are these does this tie into the stricter government the stricter guidelines that you you've requested more sort of clarity on as well or is that yeah, something cause, separate because i think we one of the, the particularly in care homes there's um a concern that because there isn't enough ppe people are being told to reuse PPE in a way that um, they were not told to do beforehand. And there's real worry that the government's changed the rules because they haven't got enough stuff to stick to the more stringent rules. And we've seen across Europe that the places that get hit worst are the care homes. And it's happening in the UK as well as in France, in Spain, in Italy, um, and now the US. So we really have to make sure we're looking after the care homes. And for government to change rules on how PPE is being should be used in care homes just because they haven't got enough of it doesn't seem the right thing to do. What advice would you give to people at the moment then? That are, firstly, the workers that are that are you know working as you, as you say so fantastically well on the front line in the care homes, and also the people uh, you know the, the, the loved ones of of residents that might be in the care homes, and you know because there's been a lot of a lot of people saying well. Why, why should these carers go to work if they're not, you know, in, in an environment which is, which is safe for them? What, what yeah. advice would you give them at the moment? So, so there are different, peop- different numbers of people who are off work. In, in some of the care homes um, in the city, the number of people off work is up to 50% of the, the staff group because if somebody becomes symptomatic, um, they need to isolate. And people are rightly um, trying to make sure they look after their families as well and don't bring... Um, the virus out of a care home and into their family. So I think we need to be incredibly grateful to to people who are doing that Mm. and also incredibly grateful to the people who are stepping into their shoes who don't normally work in care homes, who are being prepared to go and help make sure that care homes carry on um, and are able to, to, to keep running. The worst thing we could have now is care homes saying we can't cope and we have to send all our residents to hospital. The last place we want to do is to send anybody to hospital if we can possibly help it. And is that? Is it, I remember talking a couple of weeks ago, and you and you said that you were still, you know, we we still needed as many volunteer carers to to come forward. Is this still something that we're in need of? Yes, but my, one of my worries is that people have volunteered to help the NHS, but, but there not. is nothing for them to do. But the NHS is not prepared to share that list of volunteers outside the NHS to help it for people to help in care homes. So 
uh, again, um, it's, it's, it's a government thing. They need to be being more proactive to be able to do things like sharing that list of volunteers. I expect the people who volunteer to help in, in the NHS will be just as happy to volunteer in a care home and make sure that really vulnerable people at the ends of their lives are cared for, but the government haven't been prepared to share that list. I see. Well, I've, I've, yeah, I've, I've heard from people in the NHS the last couple of weeks that have said that you know they've been waiting to be sort of de- uh, redeployed and whatnot, and, and yep. sort of haven't had anything. So I suppose that there is a that there's a gap, you know, a gap, a gap in the market, so to speak, there in, in the. Well, care. I think I think the government have been probably quite rightly very worried that the peak would be much worse than it seems to have been. Hmm. It seems that people have been particularly in Portsmouth, I think, and I think occasionally we have to say we've done things right and not just always look at the bad things. But in Portsmouth, people have been really, really good at sticking to the rules about social distancing and not going out. And that's clearly had an enormous effect because the number of people in hospital is falling. Uh, And that's, that's really good news, but it's not what was expected. So I think the government hopefully will change track a little bit but they were probably right to presume that we were going to have a much, much nastier spike of, of number of people in hospital and the number of people dying in hospital. Can I ask about the announcement made by uh, Robert Jenrick, the, the local government secretary? At, at, I think it was at the weekend, wasn't it? And he announced an extra £1.6 billion for local yep. councils in England. What's um, Firstly, how, how quick is this transfer of money? And, and secondly, what, what's it likely to be spent on? So this is the second lump of money. So the first lump, we Portsmouth got just over six million, and we expect to get about the same. Um, sometimes when the government announces money, it doesn't the cash doesn't appear for a bit. But 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 on the whole, we think they're good for them good for their money. So that mm. that's not for us. It's not too much of a, a worry because we've we've got we, we've got cash in the in the bank, so that we can the cash flow is not an, not so important. For some of the other smaller district councils around us. I think cash flow really is a big problem and, and they have, may have more risk of those councils going bust. But in t- overall, that means just over £12 million coming to Portsmouth Council. We think our costs are around the £12 million, so the government will cover that. But the concern we have is that the income coming into the council will be about £12 million down as well, and the government look as if they're not going to cover that. So that's council tax not coming in, that's business rates not coming in, that's rents on properties not coming in, that's um, because we've made all the car parks um, and, and all the traffic, um, that the pay and display parts on the roads all free, mm. but not getting the parking income and that, we think they'll lose a million and a half from that. So the government look as if they're going to recompense us for direct costs, but not for the loss of income. Uh, and that's going to mean that we'll, we will be £12 million worse off. Because I was going to say, yeah, because I was going to say, my, 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 one of my first questions was going to be, couldn't that one point, you know, couldn't that money be, be spent on, maybe they're giving you the money to spend on PPE and whatnot, but I suppose you, you by well, we anyway. things you'll be... We're, we're, we're doing it anyway. Um, uh, uh, lack of money is not going to stop us buying... Um, PPE is not going to stop us buying food for people who are homeless. It's not going to. We will just go and do those things because they're the right things to do, um, and we'll sort the money out afterwards.
Right. Well, that will that that reassure people. I know. I know a lot because I know there's a lot of people that are that are worried that there's going to be a, you know people are just going to put money first. So that's going to be no, reassuring no, 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 no. for people. No, so those absolutely vital bits, mm. then, 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 then the money is in irrelevance. We just have to do the. We just have to go and get the stuff. I'm just going to, this is a really important topic and I wish we could spend half an hour talking about it, but I just want to move on quickly before we let you go on to um, something that's been asked a lot, which has been to do with schools and the free school meals. Yep. Um, of course, schools looking like they're going to be, you know, not, not open for a little while now. Yep. What's, the, what's the update there? So schools are open. Um, we've got many fewer kids in school than we thought we were going to have. So only about 2% of kids are going to school. Um, and we thought that it would be a much higher number where key workers would feel the need to, to send their kids to school so that they could continue to work. Uh, we're not unusual in that across the country, so it's pretty similar. We're also not very many of the kids who we think of as vulnerable are turning up to school. And that is a concern because um, if they're vulnerable, we're, we're there's a worry about what's happening to them if they're, they're not in school. Are they, are they okay or, or are they at risk? Mm. Um, so we had a scheme in terms of free school meals um, that the, the, our contractor was, was provi- providing, but that's now been overtaken by the government scheme. And as I understand it, families are going to get vouchers for 15 quid per, per kid per week, um, which they're able to do, and the government have decided there's a national scheme that they're going to run and um, which is so it's now out of our hands i see okay so they've ta- so they've taken the majority of that yeah. sort of okay all right so the, the bit the bit i think is really important at the moment for us is what's happening with testing in portsmouth mm-hmm. um so the government have established the hampshire testing site um at tipner yeah. so it, it doesn't just serve us it serves the whole of portsmouth um I'm worried because they're offering just 400 tests a day for a population of nearly one and a half million people. Um, And it's meant to be for care workers, but the way they've set it up means that they are only going to prepare to do it where people turn up in their own cars. And for care workers who are working on minimum wages, most people don't have a car because they can't afford it. Um, they're refusing to take people coming in taxis. So um, I, I'm really worried that this scheme that is meant to work to test care workers is, is not designed for the reality of care workers' lives. So what would be the, what would be the alternative then? Do you, do you suggest sort of a more mobile form? Well, no, I think if people can get a cab there. Or if somebody could take, but that will cost them. That will cost them a lot as well. Yeah, if you say, but, but I expect their, I expect their employer would be very happy to pay for that to, to get somebody tested. But I think what the alternative is going to be is that the council will set up our our own testing system with a private supplier where we can work with the care homes to be able to get people so that the the, so the testers would go from care home to care home and test people at places of work. And I think that the government system should have sorted this, but they've managed to, to, to not do it in a very user-friendly way. And I think we're going to have to set up our own system because theirs is just not working. Is that something that is going to be... You, you have the ability to do that? Yeah, yeah. other councils have done it around the country just because the government scheme's really not working very well. 
Okay, so so we can so so I suppose carers can expect to see something like that come up. Yep, is it? yep. So we're working on that. Okay. All right. Well, that will again also reassure a lot of carers. I'm I'm sure. Listen, uh, Gerald, thank you so much for for your time as, as always this evening. I remember you saying a few weeks back that you were gonna try and read some books through this period. Have you got any through any of them? I've got through a couple, but yeah? nowhere near <laughs> as many as I thought I was going to. I I, I thought that I'd be sat at home, um, but. The world of Zoom meetings means that I'm on conference calls all over the place. Um, uh, and actually, one of the things to learn from this is I don't need to go to London to go to meetings in the future. <laughs> actually, it works quite well doing it by Zoom. Saturday afternoon, I chaired a meeting of over 30 people from around the country. And I think it worked better as not being in a room together, but by doing it by Zoom. And we all behaved better. You just got to keep your, keep that room tidy, though, Gerald. Yes, absolutely. The background's got to be tidy. Don't make sure. Well, of course, you can have a false background, um, uh, but I'm not clever enough to do that. But and I accuse somebody <laughs> of, of having a false background of a of a, of a library behind her um, uh, in one meeting, and she got up and went up and took a book out of what I thought was the false library, but it really was a whole wall full of books. If this is going to continue, there's going to be a lot of learning to do, Gerald. A lot of yes. learning to do. Look after yourself. Yeah, and you. Stay safe. Thank you for your time this evening, Bye-bye. as always. Leader of Portsmouth City Council, uh, Gerald Vernon Jackson. Right after 6.30 this evening, we're going to chat to a local singer-songwriter about how people in the creative industry are faring throughout these difficult times. We'll also speak to the Chief Executive of Hampshire and Isle of Wight Air Ambulance shortly about how they have partnered with the RAF. And coming next, the Head of Education and Sociology at Portsmouth Uni Dr. Catherine Carroll Maheen uh, will be on the show to talk to us about homeschooling. Just great songs all day long. 93.7 Express FM. Now, the summer term, of course, should have started on the Monday that has just gone. Instead, schools are closed for the foreseeable future uh, to those that do not have uh, key workers as their parents. Um, and there's all sorts of questions over when they might return. To talk about this, the Head of Education and Sociology at Portsmouth. Uni, Dr. Catherine Carroll Meehan. Uh, good evening to you. Hello, how are you, Robbie? Yes, very well, thank you. All good with you? All safe and well? Yes, yes, yes. Um, enjoying the, su- the sunny summerish days um, from the indoors rather than the outdoors. Yeah, yeah, it's certainly, a, certainly a help to have some nice weather. Um, it must be, it must be difficult to try and, uh, you know, convince your your kids that it's time to go back to to school, but but from home because you know it's similar when we work from home. We often there's a lot of distractions, a lot of we sort of fall into maybe a, a sort of a different routine. So I imagine at the moment trying to sort of, you know, especially for the younger children, trying to make them understand that it is it's actually now sort of home school time, but from home is is a is a big obstacle for parents to overcome. I mean, you're absolutely right. Routine is probably the, the key to it. Um, you know, I, I know when my daughter was younger, um, you know, we, we sort of had, you know, the have-tos and the want-tos. Um, mm. You know, there are things that you have to do. And, you know, when you've done those things, that may be less exciting than the things you want to do. And being able to plan out um, the, the routine um, with children is probably a good way to go. Um, my my daughter is now twenty one. She's finishing her university dissertation and last two assignments at the moment. Um, so you know we are having the same sort of struggles with an older older young person. Um, you know, and it's about how do we um, support um, working habits um, 
but at the same time recognising that not every home um, is able to support children's learning at the same time. And to me, that's the biggest challenge is for those parents who may be feeling guilty about not having the expertise or the skills or the, the tech knowledge mm. to be able to support um, what schools are expecting of parents. And I was speaking to one colleague this morning who was saying that, that her school, the local Portsmouth school, was really just focusing on well-being and not expecting too much of the parents. And and some of the, the messages and tasks that they were sending home to children weren't necessarily about replicating what goes on or would be going on in the classroom, but more about keeping children engaged, keeping them linked in with their friends um, and their teachers, um, and doing some some you know, projects and fun-based learning, um, which you know didn't require um, a lot of effort from parents. It's, it's funny, funny you say that because we, I, I remember a couple of weeks ago we were talking about how you know sort of I mean we were focusing on adults and how they could sort of maintain mental health and how it's important not to sort of put too much pressure on ourselves to maybe you know yep. learn a different skill or whatever and I, I guess this, so this is applies to to kids as well because you know so it is an opportunity I suppose if you want to look at it in 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 you know certain terms then it's an opportunity just to do nothing and just to have a laugh and have some fun. Well, I think, you know, I think um, the mental health and well-being of children and young people has really been missing from the conversations um, so far about the whole lockdown. Um, You know, and for lots of children, this is a particularly worrying time. Not only is this mystery disease coming and, you know, making people sick and killing people, and that's all that's on the news, but also um, parents might be in situations where, you know, they've lost jobs, they've been furloughed, Mm. routines are out there, small businesses... Um, have have closed so I think we need to really just take the time to allow children to process all of those things that are going on Um, but at the same time expecting parents who are trying to work from home run a small business do things very differently and expect them to be teaching their children is a huge ask and I think it's the well-being of children the whole family unit um, and you know it will Everything will resume. Learning will take place again. Um, six or ten or twelve weeks out of a classroom um, is not going to have a long-term negative impact on children, um, and we need to make sure that their well-being is prioritised here. Is it also an opportunity to sort of encourage children to become more more self-directed in terms of their learning as well? Absolutely, and I think so much of what happens in classrooms is is focused on a teacher talking Mm. and leading 30 children um, learning at one time. And I absolutely agree. I think we have an opportunity to make sure that that learning is learner-directed because all of the research studies say that um, people, whether they be children or adults, learn best when they're actively involved and when there is some control. So I think when parents are looking at how they you know, take their children back into thinking about learning and educational tasks over the next few weeks. It's about how do we provide the motivation for children to do that, to become engaged, uh, to be motivated and to explore the questions that they have and um, and they will learn no matter what they're doing. Um, I imagine it's quite a... I imagine there's, there's communication between schools and parents at the moment going on, but equally, if I, was a, if I put myself in the shoes of a parent at the moment, I'd be... A, a certain worry would be when the schools do go back, 
I'd be worried about whether or not my son or daughter are they you know are they going to be do they know everything that they're going to need to know to kick off again is there certain stuff that you know all their other classmates are going to know or that is going to start being taught to them that they'll just sort of um, expect will have been taught in the in the weeks or months or however long this goes on for that we've been homeschooling is that is that just to do with community uh, I assume schools and parents are working together. Well, I think that it, that is paramount that schools and homes are, are talking. But the same could be said over a six-week summer holiday vacation, vacation period where you've got some children who will have very rich and exciting summer experiences, travel the world, do all sorts of exciting things. And you get children who don't even leave, you know, their tower block. And, you know, learning doesn't just happen in school. So you've got varied experiences coming into a classroom at any given time. And I think what teachers will be incredibly mindful about when, when children go back to schools and schools resume is the varied experiences and the range of homes that children are coming from. And I don't think we can just go, well, they've missed out on so much because they will have learned other things which aren't in the curriculum. And I think the other thing to consider is that um, we don't know what the how long this is going to go on for. And I think it takes an opportunity for us to think about, in a broader broader sense, what is the purpose of education? What's the purpose of our education system, our national curriculum, our exam schedules? When we've seen the government on one day just cancel all A-level and GCSE exams, we've got to wonder about the value of those exams and the amount of pressure that is on children in education about doing exams. So I think we need to have some, some questions about those sorts of things at a policy level, um, but also for parents and teachers having conversations about what is important about learning and education. Yeah, the, you saying that sort of reminded me of, of, of a few conversations I've had in the last few years with people where it was sort of people that are, are, are younger than me coming out of education and you know, there's, there is that argument, isn't there, that, that you don't learn enough, you know, sort of life skills when you're when you're going through education. You know, for you know, you don't know how to do a tax return or how to apply for a mortgage or something like that. You know, some of the yeah. key things that aren't. Uh, but then again, some trigonometry might not might not be used in your in your future career. So I suppose is that what you're hinting at? You know, maybe just some sort of reassessments. Absolutely, and I think we need to look at what's happening around the world in terms of what other countries are doing in terms of their curriculum and preparing children for life in the 21st century. And if we look at how some countries have with ease moved to digital learning because it was already a strong part of their curriculum where um, the government and the the nation make sure that every home has broadband um, as an essential service. And, you know, that is something that we can't guarantee in, in our country. And so if we're looking about what kinds of skills will an adult in 2030 need? And that's what the, the five-year-olds of today, they'll, they will be the adults, the 20-year-olds, oh, the, the, you know, they'll be 10 years older than they are now. Mm. But they, they will be heading into a world of work which we can't even imagine. Uh, so we need to look at what are the broader skills that are needed, things like collaboration, teamwork, problem solving, being able to communicate in different ways. Um, they are all very important skills. Anyone can go and Google any any facts. So do we need the disciplines of English and mathematics and having certain um, standards in those things? Because it's more important to be able to communicate ideas creatively and innovative and you know, be innovative about what we do. So I do think there are some wider questions about 
um, our curriculum and what that needs to look like in the future. And just quickly before we, before we let you go, what would your advice be then to, to those parents at the moment that maybe think, you know, a, a sort of now that we are a few weeks into this or however long it's been since school's closed, you know, we are we are sort of lacking in content as such to teach. Would, would you encourage things like those other skills that aren't as sort of curriculum focused? Absolutely. Range of skills. But there's also a lot of resources out there for those families that do have access to the Internet. Um, you know, all of the, the recent uh, government announcements about the additional resources and lessons, they're all really useful resources. But I really just re- want to reassure parents that um, their well-being and being able to parent and to be a good and well parent um, is, is a priority. And they need to also just protect their children in terms of their own well-being um, because it's no good if people are sick or depressed or un- unhappy. Um, no one's in a good state for learning. And so it's really about doing what you can do um, and, and not feeling guilty for what you're not doing. And don't compare yourself to other parents because that is, you know, it's kind of a downward spiral when you know, hear that, you know, your neighbour two doors down is doing something really well. You just do the best with what you have um, and with your children. Sure. Well, it's very easy to get bogged down with with social media and whatnot nowadays. A lot of people posting what they're sort of doing from a parent uh, a parental point of view on online. So that's certainly wise advice. Catherine, listen. Thanks so much for your time this evening. We really appreciate it. Okay. Thanks, Robbie. Take care. Dr. Catherine Carroll Meehan, Head of Education and Sociology at Portsmouth University. Uh, Right now, Hampshire and Isle of Wight Air Ambulance are amongst the first air ambulance services to collaborate with the Royal Air Force to carry critically ill patients from more remote areas to uh, major trauma centres with increased intensive care capacity. It's a prime example, I think, of, uh, of the community coming together to talk about it. The Chief Executive of Hampshire and Isle of Wight Air Ambulance. Alex Lochrane is on the line. Welcome to the show, Alex. Thank you very much indeed. That's great to speak to you. And you. Um, Alex, this is, a, this is a prime example, isn't it, of the MOD and, and the community working together? Well, I would say under normal circumstances, Robbie, but these are anything <laughs> but normal circumstances, and you've heard that from so many people, and your listeners will have heard that loads. But these are very, very difficult times. Um, it's a tough time to be in a charity, but it's a tough time also to be on the front line in healthcare. And our teams spend all their time on the front line in healthcare. Pre-hospital emergency medicine is right at the front end of bringing the hospital emergency department to a patient and being able to do it alongside some fantastically capable aviators in the Royal Air Force is just another opportunity to show how much we as two organisations, both Hampshire and Isle Air Ambulance and the Royal Air Force are able to combine forces really, really effectively and bring the best critical care capability to patients when they need it most. And, and explain to us how, so, so Hampshire and Isle of Wight Air Ambulance, explain to us how you normally operate and how the RAF now are, are, are helping you and help it, helping out. Normally, Robbie, we would operate a, ho- a helicopter called an H-135, which is a brilliant little aircraft that is really well adapted because it can land in some tight spaces to air ambulance operations. The difficulty under these circumstances is we can't safely carry either a suspected or a positive COVID patient because we can't isolate that patient from the rest of the crew. And equally, the rest of the crew can't wear 
the PPE, the protective equipment that you've seen so much about on the telly, and and so so effectively. Why is having, sorry? Uh, why is that that they can't wear it? It's because in order to wear their their the the equipment that they need to wear to safely fly the aircraft, sure. so uh, flight helmets, safety visor, microphones, um, and and all that kind of stuff, they mm-hmm. could not wear the PPE, the protective equipment, over the top of that. Right. Um, yeah. And obviously, they can't fly the aircraft without wearing that sure. equipment for flight safety. So you get to a situation where, sadly, one patient coming in the back of the aircraft might actually end up creating another three, mm-hmm. which is absolutely what we must try and avoid. Of course. So working with the Royal Air Force in the back of an enormous Chinook aircraft allows us to carry a, a critically ill patient, sometimes even possibly a ventilated patient. So that's a patient who's been put to sleep and uh, there are machines breathing for them. But our team can be right next to that patient and they can wear the full protective equipment in the back of the aircraft. And in the same way that they're attending the patient, the RAF air crew can be far enough away up the front end of the aircraft to be themselves safe from the patient without having to wear the protective equipment, if that makes sense. I see. So it's it's essentially just a you know a case of a bigger aircraft and a, and and literally just a just a sort of a practical distance thing. Exactly, bigger aircraft, more space, uh, more challenge. Certainly more challenge because our crew can't wear the normal flying equipment that they would wear. So having um, earphones where they listen to what's going on in the aircraft, they're completely isolated from that. So obviously they've got the noise of a great big aircraft going on. Mm. Um, They're having to really, really watch the patient's vital signs to give care to the patient. So it's a big challenge for our team, but they are absolutely up for it. Is it requiring more people then, sort of per per flight or per sort of more resources? Um, No, because of our fantastic partnership with University Hospital Southampton, we will carry on these RAF missions, we will carry... One of our critical care doctors, who's a normal member of our team, one of our specialist critical care paramedics, who's a normal member of our team, but one in addition is an intensive care technician from Southampton Hospital. And those guys and girls are very, very skilled at using the equipment that we will uh, be also using with the patient in the back of the aircraft. See, so it, it must run. That, I mean, that's only three people that, that obviously make it run, make it run smoothly. So that's that's much fewer than I than I expected it to be. How's it working, sort of logistically? Then, how in terms of who's um, sort of sort of influencing how this is structured? Is it is it from from the RAF? Is it from you guys? Is it for a, a sort of councils or gov- the government having any input into this? The government has very much pushed it forward through um, uh, through N- the NHS. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Department for Health. And what they have done is they have asked the Royal Air Force to put three helicopters on standby. And those three aircraft are there to conduct transfers, if necessary, from either the Channel Islands or the Isle of Wight. Um, so they're, at, they're ready at two hours notice to move. And if they're called forward because the Channel Islands or the Isle of Wight um, uh, send a message to say they've got a critically ill patient who needs transferring now... If they're called forward, they will come to our airbase at Thruxton with the aircraft. We have a standby crew who are, in addition to our normal helicopter crew, um, we will call notice on that standby crew. They'll come to the airbase, join the Chinook, and then go and pick the patient up. And we did this um, in earnest. We did it for the first time on Tuesday, the 7th of April. 
Um, it was before we'd actually managed to do any formal training with the RAF, but that's the nature of these things. There was a patient with a very serious head injury uh, in Jersey, and the RAF were ready to go. They picked us up, uh, and two of our fabulous team, uh, Dr. Simon Hughes, who's ex-Royal Air Force himself, and Specialist Paramedic John Gamblin, who is an ex-Navy uh, medic, they jumped at the chance and they flew two hours to Jersey and picked up this um, very badly injured patient, brought them back to Southampton. They went straight into surgery at Southampton. And so far, they're making a good recovery. So thank the Lord for that. Well, yeah, of course, that's that's fantastic to hear. Um, and it's very much down to the work that, that you've all been doing. And it's blowing my mind how how much is sort of already how much is already planned for this it's, it sounds to me like it's something that would take months and years to prepare for but it, you know you've obviously done it in 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 such quick time here is it something that you you were prepared have you been prepared to work with the RAF if it if it ever had to happen before there under under normal civil contingency procedures which are kind of dormant plans kept by all ambulance services kept by the NHS overseen by the government these, these kind of plans are sitting in the wings in case, you know, God forbid there's a major air crash or, mm-hmm. or terrorist attack or something like that. So it's absolutely required the teams to be incredibly flexible and adaptable, which they just are. You know, they are supremely professional and dedicated, but they've taken out the plans and the training that they've done with our partner South Central Ambulance Service in the past. They've dusted off those plans and they've said, OK, how are they going to work this time? And then the military have come in under contingency procedures called um, military aid to civil authority. They've come in under that, if you like, umbrella. Um, and they are all, that whole group coming together is just a supremely adaptable, flexible bunch of professionals who have looked at the problem and said, OK, let's try and find a solution to this. So that's the way they've worked together. And, and it, it does sound like it's something they've prepared before, but they haven't. No one's. You know, no one was ready for coronavirus six months, six months ago. We wouldn't even know what the word meant, but now it's the only word we speak. So they've taken, they've taken plans and they've adapted them and they've used their flexibility and their professionalism. And, but absolutely always at the center of this and this never moves at the center of all of our procedures is the patient. Well, it's, it's phenomenally sharp thinking and um and 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 professionalism as you as you say and it's i mean i'm listening just it listening in awe and, and inspired by just hearing you you talk about it there I, i'm sure there'll be a lot of people in the community that will want to support this and and sort of get get involved with this if, if they can how's how can people support this still because this is a this is going to be an ongoing effort i think it it will be for a while um and it's great that you've asked about support because as an independent charity we fully fund the service um, not the RAF, thankfully, mm. but certainly all our medics and our paramedics. Um, we fully fund them and we rely on the generosity of people in Hampshire and Isle of Wight to keep us funded. Um, and there's lots going on, as, as, as you know. So if, if folk go to our website, um, www.hiowaa.org, um, on our news page, there's lots of um, updates about what we're doing. Um, there's the occasional video message from me, if anybody can bear that. Um, but that also that keeps everyone up to date on what's going on, but also the ways that they can support us. And there's loads going on on social media. We have a Facebook quiz every Tuesday night that's being run by one of our paramedics, usually when they've just come off shift. And they've been really popular and very successful um, but there are lots of hints and tips on our social media and our website 
Um, so I just ask folk if they want to follow us and they're able to support, go to the website, get updated, um, and every little bit helps for us. Well, it, it absolutely is a is a fantastic cause. And listen, Alex, will you please um, please pass our, our gratitude and uh, and our thanks on to to everyone that is doing such a fantastic job back at Hampshire and uh, Isle of Wight Air Ambulance, and also, of course, the, the brilliant RAF as well. You're doing a doing a sterling job, and we appreciate you chatting to us about it on the show tonight. It's a pleasure, Robbie, and thanks to all your listeners. Um, and we will be we there. We will be there for them if they need us. Uh, we are their air ambulance. Well, we we really do appreciate that, Alex. Listen, stay safe and uh, keep doing the fantastic work that you're all doing, and uh, and speak soon. Thanks, Robbie. God bless everyone. Express FM, passionately Portsmouth. Now, it is a tough time uh, for all of us at the moment, but also those that are in the creative industries. And to talk about that uh, now, we've got local singer-songwriter on the phone, Lauren Hibbard. Lauren, hi to you. Hello, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm very well, thank you. How are you? All safe and well? All safe and well, thank you. <laughs> Good. Well, it, it's strange to be chatting to an artist, and um, well, I mentioned this off air, strange to be chatting and then not sort of necessarily promoting a new single, although you do, you do have one coming tomorrow. I do. Tomorrow is the release day. I'm very excited. The yeah. It's called Old News, so I'm really prepped and ready to go. So what? So talk to us about what you should have been doing at the moment. Of course, you would have been getting ready to, to release it tomorrow, which will, which will happen anyway. But what, what, what else would be happening in your world at the moment? Oh, it's such a shame. So I'm due to be on tour. Well, I would have been on tour for the last few weeks with a band called The Academic um, mm. going around the UK. And I would have just come back from Texas to play at South by Southwest, which is very sad. But hopefully it will come around again. But yeah, we should have been on quite a big tour at the moment. So that's where I should be. <laughs> yeah, and, and it must be a, a especially tough time at the moment for, for, sort of, for people in the creative industries. And we, it's something we haven't touched on as much in the last few weeks. But for people like yourself, people that you know, like to be performing, you like to be going out and different places, you, know, you do so much traveling and things like that. How difficult is it at the moment for people like you? It is difficult. I mean, it's hard because I think I'll never take a gig for granted ever again, that's for sure. <laughs> but I think it's difficult because, it, you know, this sort of industry relies on relies on live music, you know, so yeah. it will have a knock-on effect. But luckily I can be creative in different ways and I can sit at home and write and record music. But I, I think it, it has sort of put a bit of a halt on on you know an up-and-coming artist progression because that's how people evolve by getting out playing live and gaining new fans in the room so yeah it, it yeah, it is difficult. Well, I was, was going to ask about that because, of course, you know, we've, we've been saying on the on the Drive Time show recently about how many sort of how we're we're looking forward to all the new music that we're going to get out of this period. But is it, it so is it going to be a case of that that you know people like yourselves are are locked in? So you you're sort of you know you've got all that thinking time that we all have at the moment to to come up with with new songs and write things to sort of express yourself, or is it you know at the same time surely that must be put quite a lot of pressure on you because you know equally you yeah. might just want to sit around and do nothing for a few weeks yeah definitely I think I've definitely taken to writing quite a lot in this time and I think it's just helped me feel like I have a bit of a purpose if anything mm. so I feel like I will come out of this with a lot of tracks that I'll be sort of thinking about an album for which is quite exciting but there are definitely some days where I think oh there's nothing more uninspiring than just sitting in your bedroom for you know the fourth week in a row and thinking what could I write about next mm. so it is it does kind of put a bit of pressure on you in that sense but um, I've, I find it quite natural to sit and write, so I think that's what I do to sort of fill my time anyway. So I found that quite easy to 
to get on board with. Do you, do you feel supported as well? Because I know there's been I know there's been quite a lot of sort of criticism over sort of sometimes the lack of empathy from sort of financial institutions and the government sort mm-hmm. of towards creative industries and those that are trying to trying to sort of make it in the creative industries. Do you do you feel supported? Um, I think I do and I don't. I mean, I've always you know I'm not signed or anything, so I you know I'm quite used to supporting myself. Mm. But I think the the problem for me was the South by Southwest knock because um, it was like a loss of flights, a loss of um, like accommodation and, you know, we'd paid someone to go over visas and things like that. So a lot of that I can't recoup. And that's sort of been a bit silent um, over on their front at the moment. But I don't know if something might come around later on. Um, yeah, it's difficult. It's difficult when you've planned ahead and you've gone and booked in advance, you know, because you think that's you know, cheaper and the best way to do it. And then perhaps that might not come around but I think a lot of people are in the same boat so I think it's a bit of a grin and bear it for what, you know, what, the sake of what's going on yeah and what what is it like for those around you because obviously you know you, you've got you, you know your band and there's so, there's so many people that, that sort of uh, that put so much effort into into making these things happen and so many people that rely on you know on, on, yeah. on gigs live music and and you know people um, sort of releasing records and stuff how, how are, how's the rest of the industry do you think that they'll cope from this I think we'll see a bit of a change in the industry, personally. Um, my prediction would be, I mean, I, I'd like to think that we'd come out of it and everyone would be hungrier to sort of, you know, get out and put loads of festivals and go to loads of gigs. But I don't know how quickly this will sort of recover itself. And I think, mm. you know, I, in my head, I see it a little bit longer um, and it's with a few more sort of precautions. And I think if you can't all get in a room and bounce around with each other at a gig, then you know, that, that will damage it for a while. Um, but I do think people are very supportive online and the live stream thing is going really well and people, I think, are getting behind buying like merchandise from artists and, and things like that. So I think there is a bit of a sense of people coming together and I'm sure, you know, all these festivals will proceed as soon as they can and I'll, I'll definitely be there when they do. Yeah, well, second that. I mean, it's weird because there's, there's all these live streams going on at the moment and so many artists doing sort of their their own sort of spin on things online, but that's quite yeah. hard to make any sort of real... That's You can't really make a living from that, can you? No, I mean, you don't, you, you don't make money from a live stream. So if, you know, sometimes it's exposure if you go on to, you know, someone else's Instagram account and do a live stream, you know, from... Like, for example, tonight I'm going live on Jimmy's in Manchester. They're a music venue. Yeah. I've played there a few times. I'm doing a live stream from, from their Instagram in hope to pick up a couple of people, you know, that might stumble across it from there. But, you know, there's no, there's no sort of... There's no money in it at all, but... And what's going to happen tomorrow with your with your single release? Is it going to be a, going to be a part a sort of a get on? Was it a house party and Zoom and whatnot? Have a little promotion. Yeah, party. yeah, definitely a bit of a celebration party over Zoom. Yeah, like well, so, well, yeah, but I'm sure it'll be fine. Everyone's stuck to their phones, so it's quite a good time to release new music. Yeah, well, of course. I mean, I know that because we had you know people like Dua Lipa and stuff release their album a week yeah. earlier. You know, because there is a lot of time on our hands to to listen to yeah. new music. So I suppose that's exactly. hopefully going to going to be a bit of a silver lining and play into your hands a little bit. I hope so. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I hope so too for all of our all of our local artists. Listen, Lauren, take yeah. care of yourself and uh, good luck with the with the new single coming out t- tomorrow. And um, look, keep making the great music you're doing. Thank you so much. See Cheers. you soon. Stay safe, Lauren. Take care.
Bye. Lauren Hibbard, singer-songwriter, uh, got a new, new track out tomorrow. Mad. Old Nudes going to be out tomorrow. Right. Uh, it's difficult for people in the creative industry at the moment. Difficult also for those that are trying to get into the creative industry, for students uh, that are ending their degrees at university at the moment or, or, or from home. We've got Eloise on the line, who's a, a student at the University of Winchester. Eloise, hi. Hi, Robbie. Uh, so you're studying media and communications, and you're in your third year. So you're ending, you're basically ending your degree in the next coming coming weeks. Is that right? Yeah, I am. So I'm literally in my final year now, and I've been there for three years. And yeah, literally, I'm right in the middle of my dissertation and all the final assignments and everything. It's it's all happening right now. <laughs> so what's the what's the deal with that then? So are things as normal in terms of you submitting work? Are deadlines changing? What's what's happening? So yeah, we've been given an extension on some of our deadlines. Um, all of our assignments, including my dissertation, has been extended for two weeks. Um, overall, my diff has been extended for a month because we had issues with strikes as well. So we've had like a lot of extensions, mm-hmm. which have really really helped. Um, but the situation was obviously my uni was forced to close. Um, in the last sort of couple of weeks of term, they ended all face-to-face teaching, and so literally the day after they announced the uni closing, my parents picked me up, and I've been working at home ever since. So um, all of my lectures were on um, like a FaceTime kind of platform, which was quite strange to be honest, but. They still did happen, but yeah, it's, it's all been virtual basically. And, and how do you, uh, how well have the have your university been sort of communicating with you? How how in control do you think they are? Because of course everyone's learning it, you know, as as we go along at the moment. But do you feel supported enough by them? Do you feel like they they have the situation under control? Yeah, I mean, a lot of my teachers have been pretty good. Um, for example, I'm a dyslexic student, and I get a lot of dyslexia support, and I've had constant. Um, communication with my tutor who deals with that um my dissertation supervisor as well i still have regular um chats with her she's been uh, doing like facetime calls with me to keep me up to date um the kind of course leaders have been quite good as well they've been emailing us trying to keep us up to date it's just it's just hard though because you just never know when you're going to get an update and you never know what you're going to say and I think with the pandemic, there's a lot of things going on that you've got to think about. So, like, for example, you've got to think about what's going to happen in terms of my rent for my accommodation, what's going to happen with my degree. Like, uh, there's, there's like the, the no detriment policies and things like that going on. There's a lot of mm-hmm. things you ask yourself. And, but I think my experience has been okay. I, I can't really speak for everyone else, but I think I'm lucky that I have really good tutors who have been really helpful to me. And, they do make a lot of effort to stay in contact. So, yeah, it's been pretty good. Well, it must be it must be tough nonetheless. Listen, Eloise, uh, g- good luck with it. I hope that it's um, it's not too interrupted for the last few weeks or however long y- you have left. And uh, and good luck with the rest of your degree. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I think I'm going to need it. Thank you so much. <laughs> Take care, Eloise. Thank you very <laughs> thank much. You. A big thank you to all of my guests on the show this week. As always, if you do have a question that you want answering in future episodes, all you need to do is email me, robbie at expressfm.com, with anything that you'd like addressing in future episodes. Stay safe, wash your hands, and we will be back live for another coronavirus special on Wednesday evening from 6 o'clock.